Hello, and welcome to episode 33 of the Network Collective Community Roundtable. In this episode, we're turning conventional wisdom on its head and telling you to go out and break all the things. Listen in as we explore why breaking things can be a strategy to a more resilient network infrastructure. Before getting started, we wanted to tell you about the Network Collective Community Membership. Networks and networkers have never been more important, and having a community of good engineers to lean on and learn from is invaluable. That's why we're building a community of network engineers who are looking to grow and mature in their careers. Membership gets you lots of great exclusive training and mentorship material, as well as access to a group of people just like yourself to bounce ideas off of and to chat with about the things that are happening in your specific corner of the world. All of the hosts, many of our guests hang out in the Slack to add their voice to the conversation as well. If this sounds like something that could be valuable to you, head on over to thenetworkcollective.com slash join to learn more. We would love to have you as a member. All right, let's get started. So uh, Chris and Michael, thanks for joining us. Michael, this is a, this is a repeat for you. You're, you're back on second episode. You came on and talked about SRE not too long ago. Yeah, it's great to be back. And uh, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, so the premise of the episode is that breaking things can be beneficial. Uh, does someone want to take a crack at kind of explaining at a high level what we mean when we say breaking things? Sure, I can try. So at work, we, we have an actual event every year, one week long, where every operational part of the company finds some particular things they'd like to try and test breaking. It could be turning off your AAA system for your network. It could be disabling some part of a, a different service in the network, like turning off syslog access, turning off a particular firewall, some sort of features like this. And a lot of the really, uh, the focus is not on, you know, oh, your thing broke. It's really about if this is broken, what's the operational process you follow to get it turned back on? How do you continue to operate the network that you have in a broken state and bring it back to normal operation? Um, and I think... So, so what is the, I mean, what is the ultimate goal of that? I mean, so, I mean, you do this, you break things like what, what are the things you're trying to achieve? So I think the, uh, what we're trying to achieve is make sure that things that don't normally happen and the procedures that you have written down for how to deal with those things, not, or being, being broken are exercised on a regular basis. And I think in like 2001 or 2002, I had to give a presentation to the um, DOD Nick about networking problems. And I said, you know, I, it's a, it occurs to me that like operating a computer network is no different than anything else that the army does, right? You have tanks, you put people in them, you drive them around in a field, you pretend shoot at things, you actually shoot at things. And later on when you actually have to, have to go somewhere, somebody's not like, where does the bullet go, right? They, you know, they have a clear understanding of like how to operate all this stuff. And I think that's, that's exactly the situation that we, we use at work for this. It's, it's, you know, every day when you do things and, and the infrastructure that we have is constantly evolving. Everybody's infrastructure is constantly evolving in some way. So the procedure that I wrote down last year for if my TACX server goes down and it doesn't work, I go to this web page, I pull out the password here, I start using it until, you know, whilst I paged Chris to please unscrew his TACX server, like, you know, you know all, Chris's pager number changed, by the way. Oops, we figured that out right? The password doesn't work anymore because we changed it every, every, you know, 90 days, right? Like that's optimistic. All of this stuff. Well, we actually, <laughs> you know, 
we actually do change them every day. No, no, no. I, I'm sure I, I, well-run infrastructures, I'm sure, are, are doing that. I, I, work, I work more in the enterprise, so sorry if my cynicism comes through. Oh, no, yeah. Our, our, we make our enterprise do it every 90 days, too. But no, the, I think the thing is, like, you, you have a set of procedures that you, you created when you built something, and those procedures are there to account for, you know, some thoughtful engineer thinks through all the possible problems, writes a bunch of procedures, if you're lucky, and put those in a book. Right, and then not nine months or a year, two years or four years later, the bad thing happens, and you pull it out and go, "Wow, we don't have a Cisco seventy five hundred anymore. We don't have that anywhere. Like now, what do I do?" Right. So every year you go through the procedure and you say, "Does this work?" And you can exercise the procedure in a fashion that is, "You should go off and do this, Michael. Make sure this all works." And Michael goes, "Oh, if I'm totally gonna do that when I'm not on my coffee break, right?" Like, <laughs> you know. So making people go through the procedures, figures out problems with those procedures, figures out where even the ones that are correct aren't working exactly as they should. And we are able to suss out problems before we actually need them. You brought up an interesting point there. I think that, you know, when we build a system or we put something in, uh, you know, if, if we're really trying to do a good job, we try to think about all the potential failure scenarios. Uh, but even as good as I'm sure all of us on this call are, and everyone listening is a fantastic engineer, right? And can think of many of the failure scenarios. You can't think of them all. And so I like this idea that it's not only just, um, it's not only just about discovering, hey, things have changed in the environment, but like when this thing breaks, having a practical, like I've gone through this before. It's not, it's not theory. We've put practice to it. Right. So Equally, this sort of work though is not as, just as much about practicing the incident management procedure and escalations as it is actually validating, you know, what is written down. Um, so if uh, you, and you inevitably will run up, uh, run into something that isn't written down, uh, you have a procedure where you can contact people, escalate to people that do have the answers that can help you in a timely manner um, and ensure that you can resolve the incident, uh, you know, without having to go into, you know, several hours uh, worth of downtime or degradation. Yeah, I think, I think one of the points that's, that I, I find helpful with the procedure and the process is it's okay to escalate. Like this isn't working. The service is down. Chris isn't responding. Call his manager. That's all cool. Please do that. Right. And, and we should not be in a, I, I think we should not be in a situation where as a corporation that operates services for the public good in some extent, or to some extent also for money, but we, we should try not to be in a situation where like, oh, I, I can't call that person because they are a VP. Nope, you should definitely call that person, right? If it gets to it, you should call them. And if you, if you, if, if you call them when you shouldn't have, they shouldn't yell at you. They should say, maybe you should have called somebody else before you called me, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we're getting into, uh, you know, I, I think some of that is business culture, right? Like the idea. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, do, do you think that like taking this approach? So I guess this is kind of a chicken and the egg type question. Do you think companies that take this approach get develop a better business culture because they've worked through this process and, and figure out who they need to get involved? Or do you think that companies who take this approach tend to have a better culture because they're willing to take the risk of breaking things just out of curiosity? You guys have a take on that? I think you'll find that companies that do perform uh, like what uh, I call resiliency engineering, um, they're more likely to have, um, you know, procedures in place um, that are sort of enacted by culture uh, that enable, um, you know, enable 
this testing to go on frequently and then for when the uh, actual incidents come that, you know, people are okay with being called um, or escalated to, you know, no matter what time of day. Yeah, I, th- I think there's, a, I think it's a virtuous circle. I think if you start small or you try to get people used to the concept of breaking things, then what ends up happening is, is people understand what's going on better and they get more accustomed to it and they actually start looking forward to the time when things get broken so that they can figure out what's wrong with their processes. And, you know, you just get used to things being broken, which I think is in many, in many companies I've talked to in the past, like I've talked to, uh, I think I've actually talked about this in blog posts before where somebody will say, well, I work for a hospital. We can't break things because it risks people's lives. And my attitude is just the opposite of that. I'd like to see hospitals breaking things because what happens when it really does break? Nobody actually knows. Um, you know, do you just assume that you have five nines of availability and there's no tested procedures. There's no, nothing that goes on that's, that's going to help you understand what to do when something goes wrong. But I mean, there has to be a balance here, right? I mean, like you, you can't just go break everything all at once. I mean, like you no. need a system to continue working. So there has to be some, some thought to how you do this. But I mean, I think that I think our thought in how to do this can bias the results, right? If we, if we, if we look at the things that are, we're allowed to break and the things that we're not allowed to break, all of a sudden we're not really testing the system, right? So yeah. how do you balance that? I mean, in an organization, I mean, uh, uh, Michael and Chris, you both work for organizations that have uh, high needs for uptime and availability for you know, various reasons. How do, you, how do you balance that with the idea that you need to know and understand these, these processes and procedures? So for us at LinkedIn, uh, we've done resiliency engineering for quite a period of time on our application stack. And so first of all, we start, uh, start small um, in, you know, a very confined space. We're not, um, you know, offlining, you know, a whole data center, uh, you know, we're playing with one host, one application where, you know, we might introduce some latency on the network or some packet loss. And that's well communicated to everyone who's concerned with the operation of that service, whether it be upstreams, downstreams, or the service owners themselves. From there, you know, once we understand the, beh- uh, the behavior, um, when we inject some sort of fault, we can sort of go larger. Um, but f- we definitely don't take people uh, by complete surprise. Um, you know, if there is to be something larger, um, we don't necessarily have to give away the exact details, but we can say, hey, something is going to be happening um, just so people aren't completely blindsided and annoyed, um, you know, that they've chased their tail for, you know, two hours for absolutely nothing. Uh, Everything's well thought out and communicated uh, beforehand. And as going back to what I was saying earlier, some of these tests are just to validate some assumptions about how a a piece of infrastructure operates um, in a failure mode and ensuring that we do have uh, acceptable uh, mitigations or backups or degradation plan for that piece of infrastructure. I want to jump back to the culture question for a second, though, um, because uh, Jordan made the comment that it's a, a chicken or egg, chicken and egg kind of conversation. But I don't know. I think I think this clearly this question clearly has a source, and I think culture has to drive it um, because. If, if you're in a culture that is, well, things can never be down. Um, if you try to bubble something like this up from the grassroots, um, you're just going to get shot. Um, 
is, is what it amounts to from a leadership perspective. So I really think it's important that if this is a mindset that you think needs to be embraced in your organization, that um, you have the proper leadership on board and they understand philosophically what you're doing and why you're doing it. And, um, and just everybody understands what's going on because you can't just go in and start willy nilly breaking things in a culture that's going to um, uh, have serious repercussions. Like I've, I've been in orgs where it takes three or four weeks to shut off a switch port. Right. Um, and if that's the kind of culture that you're in, there's a lot of work to be done before you can embrace this kind of uh, methodology. Well, right. And I think that's why you go back to the idea of you break something small, you convince somebody to let you break something small and then they get less afraid of things breaking. I think there's a there's a massive fear of breaking things. I mean, it's like we're so dramatically afraid of it culturally, of failure, that and we see this as a failure, right? You went out and broke something, and and our recovery mechanism didn't work, so now we failed. Oh, well, that's bad. Well, no, it's actually good because you just discovered that your recovery mechanism doesn't work. So that's a good thing, not a bad thing. So, hey, Michael talks about. Um, the idea of scoping it in terms of application stack, right, Michael? I mean, you're working on particular applications one at a time and, you know, or certain things like this, and you're trying to figure out where the domino effects are, things like that. And I think, Chris, when you first came up, you said that you do this for one week out of the year. So you scope it in time, right? So I think everybody has a scope. Is that right? I mean, is that what you're doing there, Chris, is you're trying to scope it in time? Um, yes, I think so. A bunch of the effort is is time-based and it's, it takes time to set up all the tests or to and think of the test, figure out how to test it, what you're going to test, how to what, see what the right, right results are, and then to write up what happened afterwards to figure out what you have to do. So that's part of the reason why it's only a week. I think the other reason is that sometimes it does actually break things we weren't expecting, um, which is a good lesson to learn too. But it's also, it's a time when everyone involved in the operations side says, okay, here's you know, this stuff is going on. So make sure when there's a real problem that you're very clear, this is a real problem. It's not the disaster recovery test, you know, we testing. Um, yeah. I think the, the issue of culture and the, you know, we don't ever want to break something is, is very naive, which maybe was your point, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, continue that because I think it is important to say that that it is a very naive concept. Because things certainly are going to break. You know, and so when they do, you, you must have some plan that you've tested and you know works, right? Or you're just saying like, okay, we're never going to break stuff. And when it breaks, like, we have no idea how we're going to fix it, which is counter, you know, it's counterproductive. So, yeah. A good way to sort of scope the conversation in terms of talking to executives is testing failure in a controlled manner versus an uncontrolled manner. If you go and you know take down a backbone link in a controlled manner and see what happens, uh, you know if something does uh, is affected, you can very quickly uh, go and fix that link. Whereas if you lose that backbone link um, and you know your infrastructure is now severely broken, you're at the mercy of the provider to go and get that back up, and you know there's nothing you can do. If you pre-plan this, um, you know you could have a mitigation plan or a degradation plan in place uh, to ensure that your infrastructure is not as affected as badly and you know how to recover from that particular situation. Yeah. 
That's an excellent point. Yeah, I mean, I, I think about this in, in contrast. I mean, so like, you know, Netflix has been out there and very vocal about their, their you know, chaos monkey, the idea that they kind of just let this thing loose <laughs> to, to break stuff dynamically. And this kind of sits in contrast with what the, what the two of you are saying. I think, that, I think that maybe there's a level of maturity that comes with the, the Netflix strategy that they're able to do that because they've kind of worked through a lot of these things. Uh, preemptively so they can be a bit more dynamic. I think that I, like, like like most things in technology, a lot of people look at things as black and white. Either you're breaking everything or you're breaking nothing. And I, I think that what I'm hearing is that it's not that way. Start small. They go in and, 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 and scope out something specific. Once you have that kind of narrowed down and, and, and isolated and we're confident with the process and the procedure and that we know how things are going to happen when that fails, move on to the next thing. Does that sound, is that pretty much what you're saying? Or... I mean, yes. I, I, think you have to, I think you have to go back, right? You have to go back eventually and, and continue to test at some, some sort of interval, but continue to grow your strategy about the things that you're, you're willing to break. Right. So I, I would say just take Michael's example of taking a backbone link offline. Mm -hmm. So when we have more than five links in our network and, uh, and we have outages all the time on them, right? And, and so we get some practice on a regular basis, troubleshooting link outages, looking at optical, you know, power levels, all this stuff. But as we move from one platform to another platform to another platform, the tooling available is changing. And so if you have, you know, your network operations center folks or your network operations people, if you don't have a network operations center, like the guy responsible, he's going to have to know at three in the morning how to look for light levels on whatever platform you have and the new one that's coming, how to loop back the interface, how to contact, how to talk to his CSU, DSU equivalent, right, upstream, what questions to ask the provider, who is the provider, what's the circuit number, where is this all documented, like, all this stuff is changing on a regular basis in anybody's system. If you don't know where those things are at three in the morning, it's going to be a longer outage than it needs to be. <laughs> I'm sitting here You're talking muted, to mute. I know, I'm sitting here talking to mute. That's an <laughs> am amateur mistake here. Uh, <laughs> amateur hour on the network collective. Yeah, yeah. It's not like <laughs> we've been doing this for a year and a half or anything. Uh, uh, so, uh, I mean, we've talked a lot about the idea that this helps us in, in the process, right? And I think we've kind of driven that home, the idea of, of working through, like, what it looks like when something fails. Um, but I think, and I'd like to hear what you guys think, that it actually helps you in your design as well. Um, because I think that as you, as you start to take this, this approach, like you're going to start thinking about the fact that I'm going to have to fail this intentionally at some point. I think that sometimes we just, you know, I think it was Chris who said earlier that we just assume that something's never going to fail. You know, a, a lot of, again, I, I said earlier, I work in the enterprise, a lot of enterprises buy these big chassis with, you know, multiple, you know, redundant supervisors and all kinds of redundancy within the box and say, well, the box will never fail. Um, I think as you, as you start thinking about design, um, can, can we talk about how many routers light themselves on fire first? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and, and that's and that's a very valid point, right? Like the, the like you, I think as you start realizing the fact that I have to plan for this thing failing, you start questioning maybe some of your assumptions, and right. so it, I think it impacts your design, right? Like like the value of having that big chassis box that has quad power supplies and dual supervisors and everything else. And you start realizing that even that box has a single point of failure internally, whatever it is, there is some single point of failure inside. There's that still a back plane that yeah, makes it all talk. That's right. And there's still a bunch of switching ASICs sitting there running that back plane and 
all that other no stuff. control plane. Yeah, yeah all, all that, that stuff. stuff. Yeah. So there's still single points of failure and you think you've got it covered, but the reality is software happens, bugs happen, you know, it's going to go down. So, 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 so I imagine, uh, you know, uh, both, you know, Chris and Michael, you guys have worked in your environments for a while. Um, I, I'm, I'm assuming that there's a maturity in design that comes with this. Is, is, that, is that what you see? There's definitely a maturity in the process, um, but it's also there's a maturity in thinking. Um, you know, as uh, your resilience engineering uh, process gets more evolved, um, you know, everyone from, uh, you know, VPs down to junior developers have that mindset of, you know, I need to have uh, write my code or build my infrastructure in a very defensive way uh, because for companies like uh, LinkedIn and Google, just given the size of our infrastructure, we're going to have uh, small failures uh, every day, um, just by the math. Uh, like if you look at, uh, you know, set of hard drives, you have hard drive failures every day. You need to be able to build, um, you know, some resilience into your, uh, into your infrastructure or into your applications. Um, and so given the uh, resilience engineering automation framework, we have a uh, LinkedIn called uh, Waterbear. Uh, and I'll give us a quick plug. You can find uh, a lot of blogs about what we've done uh, up uh, on the LinkedIn engineering side. Um, even during testing um, or in our staging environment, we can run these resilience engineering tests um, and regression tests to make sure that any new code that is pushed um, doesn't have any new critical dependencies that we should be aware of before it goes into production. Um, so we definitely have the ability to build that uh, resiliency mindset uh, into our engineers and ensure uh, that you know, when the code does go to production, um, you know, we're not regressing in that resiliency. So I think there's maybe a question to but ask. But I think so if you know culturally Oh, sorry. No, that, that you're going to be breaking things regularly during the design process. You're no, you're forced to think what's going to happen when this breaks, not if it breaks. And so, you know, you're going to be forced to deal with it. And so that, that mental escape <laughs> that, we, that we sometimes keep that, oh, well, this, this little piece won't break is you no longer have that avenue because you have a culture that says we are going to break it, right? We're, we know it's going to break and we're going to force it to break. Yeah. I think that's a really important point. Yeah. So Chris, you were going to say, I was going to say, I was going to ask Michael, you know, at some point in designing systems or in, or doing engineering work for me, I started sort of realizing, uh, you know, it's really nice to build a brand new, super cool thing, but you have to operate it long-term. And so what happens a year from now, what happens, you know, how do you plan for birth to death for the thing that you have, right? I think that helps you build in the planning for failure, planning for changes, you know, the whole, for me, it, it took, maybe it took a while, but it, it sort of get, I got to the point where I sort of, okay, we built this thing. Now, what are we going to do, you know, all the way through? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, services live longer than what people expect them to, or pieces of infrastructure uh, live longer than we uh, hope. Forever. Um, <laughs> just, just name it temp. It'll be the uh, So, like, um, there are definitely projects where, you know, I've thought that, all right, this is going to be the thing for, you know, the foreseeable future, and it will well and truly outlive me. Um, so, you know, I've written my code, um, in a modular way. I've taken advantage of, um, you know, company frameworks, um, 
that will that I can leverage um, that will help do some of that defensive work uh, for me. So we've definitely we've got a transport uh, API transport layer called Restly at LinkedIn, um, and we've put things into that framework that help us um, degrade gracefully. So you know all uh, all of our applications internally are built off this framework, um, and you know down the road we can keep contributing to that framework um, and make and uh, put those resiliency measures into that framework uh, so that you know when we do have some sort of issue. The framework can try and take care of it uh, for us first. If not, you know, we can add some uh, code to the application to handle whatever the failure is in a more graceful manner. And going back to what we said, uh, what I said earlier, we have regression testing for this. So every new release, I can run a, uh, I can simulate a set of failures uh, in it when I'm doing my uh, canary testing, and validate that I haven't added any new, you know, critical. Um, downstream dependencies that would cause problems uh, for my end users if something was to fail. So I want to play devil's advocate here for a minute and, uh, and, and say like all of this sounds great. Uh, but you know, both of you come from a, a larger scale background and you know, you look at these problems and, and, and these things that you're talking about seem, I don't know, they seem a bit lofty for maybe the midsize enterprise, you know, to pursue. So what, what do you say to that? Is this something that's specifically for larger organizations or is this something that scales down to, to you know, maybe a midsize enterprise or, or even lower? I definitely uh, think that it can start um, with smaller uh, enterprises. If you look at uh, Gremlin, um, they're a chaos engineering startup. Um, you know, they're you know, probably less than 50 people, right? And they continuously chaos test their infrastructure, even though it's all cloud-based, um, they still run those tests. And so there are a number of open source tools um, like uh, Chaos Monkey from Netflix, or um, I think it's called Chaos Toolkit. Um, you know, there are openings into that space where you can start with, um, you know, filling up a disk or, um, introducing latency or packet loss on a network interface. They're all pretty simple things that you can do on your own uh, to you know, validate some smaller set of assumptions and you can work your way up from there. So um, you know, even if you're building you know, something open source um, you know, for your own entertainment, you can still uh, go and run some small set of chaos tests um, or resiliency tests uh, to ensure that they do behave in an expect in a graceful matter, you know, if something is to happen uh, that you depend on. Yeah, and you can even run fuzz testing against um, individual open source projects that will just shove stuff at the, at the application that's completely random and see how it reacts. Re resiliency engineering is, I think, an extension of unit testing. Um, like if you're writing a good set of unit tests for your code, um, you should have, um, you know, uh, failure conditions where you test that if you get a 500 from this server that, you know, you return a specific error message and resiliency engineering is not, um, you know, too much of a leap from that. I don't think um, if you've got that mindset. So what do you think, Chris, what do you say to the enterprise? Do you say to the enterprise, I understand you're too small or do you think, no, they should be doing this as well. They should have the same mindset. I think, I think understanding how you fail and how you fix the failure is important for everybody. And even an enterprise, if it's, you know, I think especially in, in smaller situations, you know, where there's one or two people that do network and IT stuff, 
you know, Jim's going to know something and Jane isn't or vice versa. Right. And so like, even in, uh, at Google in the, in the part of the company that I work in, there's only six of us or five of us, not counting my manager. And, you know, there are people that specialize in one part or another. And so it's, it's behooves me to make sure that my coworkers know the parts I know. And so sometimes when, when I'm not available, like they have to do stuff on stuff that I'm, you know, arguably the SME for, for the, the subject matter expert. And I think, I think this in, is an, in, oh, sorry, go ahead and finish. No, I was, I was just going to say that I think in a small organization, there's going to be specialization and, you know, knowing what your coworker does is not always top of mind. So. Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting point because I started off in, for small bars and integrators in, in the SMB space. And I remember moving to the enterprise and, and one, of, one of the thoughts that I thought was, oh, there are going to be a team of several networking people. It won't be just me anymore. Uh (laughs) But what you find is that even in those large environments, no matter how many people you've got, people have their areas of specialization. And still, regardless of the size, even if you have like a thousand person IT team, you may have only one or two people who know a specific thing and know that thing well. And that thing could be something critical like TACAX or your identity engine. Um, or, you know, something that's super important to your entire enterprise and you've got one or two people who understand it. So and that kind of mindset should, should go from, you know, regardless of the size of the org. Yeah. Go ahead. This is, this is true at hyperscalers too. People think when you go to a hyperscaler, there's going to be 20 people who know networking. Really, that's not true. Really, everywhere I've been, everyone I've talked to, there's three, four or five who know any part of the network in depth. And they don't know anything else, or they know some parts of it, but they don't really know it in depth other than their little piece of it. And you think, well, maybe if I go to a vendor, that will change. That's really not true either. Um, there was a time at Cisco when we had one ISIS coder, one BGP coder, one EIGRP coder, and one OSPF coder, literally, in the entire company. And you know, I think this is true anywhere you go, and I think it's something that people in IT don't expect. They always think that Somewhere over there in some other organization, it's different. It's really not. It's the same everywhere. And so that's, that goes back to the whole, why is it so important to break things? Because other people need to know it and know how to fix it. And they're not going to know unless it gets broken every now and again. So that's, you know, that's another point to the enterprise people is that, hey, you may only have two people working on your entire network, but they're still going to specialize. Like you said, Yvonne. Join the club. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> So there it is. I think there's a natural human element too. that the vast majority of people, they get comfortable doing a limited number of things. Right. And so they'll, they'll, fo- they'll naturally specialize or focus on the things that they're most comfortable doing. And when they're on call for a system, like when I'm on call, there's probably eight or 10 things round numbers that I have to sort of, I might be responsible for fixing. Of those, maybe three I know really well. And the other ones I have to kind of pick up, I have to be able to pick up from, from the bottom and get to the top really quickly to fix it. So forced breakage, you know, or an opportunity to say, this is broken, you fix it, right? So it's, it's not, it's, it's, really, it's, a, it's really a training and familiarization thing for people. 
Yeah, I mean, that almost came full circle because we, t- we talked about the idea at the beginning of the fact that, you know, you learn the process and you learn what's there and that the, the team learns it. But I almost think as an individual, by going through this process, it kind of forces you to learn some things that may not be in your comfort or your wellhouse. So, I mean, there's a personal development side of it as well. Working on a team so, like this, you're going to get an opportunity to, you I mean, you're just going to be, you're going to be forced to, right? There's just going to be this, this yeah. lever that's pushing you into the fact that like, you know, even if I don't fully understand it, there's this doc, you know, because of, of the resiliency testing that we've done that says this is the procedure to bring it back online. Maybe, maybe one time it's, you know, it's my responsibility to bring that service back online, to follow the doc, to make sure that I understand it. Uh, that's that's only going to help me as an individual grow in in my skill set and being able to be effective for the company. So, you know, we we talked about process, we talked about improving infrastructure and design, but it also it improves people. Yeah, I would, I would say I mean, Mike, Mike and I were talking about this before the before we jumped on this. Is that that's actually another crucial point to this whole thing of breaking things to me is that I know I learned a lot about how routing protocols work by compiling GDB into iOS Classic and then throwing garbage packets at the routing protocol and seeing how that processed itself through the code and just understanding how does this actually work. And I think that even if you can't get to that level, which by the way, with open source routing uh, out there and the ability to run GDB, I mean, you may not know C and you may not know how to do this stuff, but there are tools that are out there that you can do this stuff today if you wanted to. But in general, just the concept of, setting up OSPF in the lab and breaking it, which is tremendously easier than any other protocol. But anyway, <laughs> me, me, and, me and my OSPF stuff. Anyway, um, helps you understand what you're doing so much better. And I think that's something maybe, maybe Michael wants to talk about a little bit because I think that's a really interesting thing that we started our conversation about this afternoon. Yeah, I think it goes back to the um, known unknowns and unknown unknowns. Um, for there are definitely things that we know that we don't know about our application um and then there's other um you know where if something dies how does the application respond there's also you know a thousand different ways an application uh, or a piece of infrastructure could die and you know you can't test for all of them so again you know we're uh when we're running resiliency testing we're trying to test for the process to make sure that um you know, if it is something that we're uns- uh, unsure of how to handle, you know, there are other procedures in place um, to get the answers we need. Um, and uh, ensure basically um, that, you know, no matter what the issue is that we run up against, we have a at least a template to resolve the issue. Um, one other thing that we do well here is uh, uh, some teams at LinkedIn run this thing called uh, the Wheel of Death, uh, Wheel of Death. And it's a sort of lunchtime training exercise uh, where you have a number of different scenarios on a wheel. You spin the wheel and you have to talk your way through troubleshooting uh, and resolving it. Um, And that's sort of a really good way to engage people, especially if they're new to the company, sort of walk through a very simple, um, not simple, but, you know, common-ish incidents where, you know, you need to take multiple steps to resolve it and understand what those steps are. Um, and, you know, other different ways to attack the problem that you may not have thought of yet. Wheel of death? 
Yep, that's I, what I, we call it. I, I, I picture you taking a new person and pinning them up against a wheel <laughs> and throwing them. <laughs> 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 we're a carnival act we looked at. It's then. a very nice, pretty wheel with post-its of different failure scenarios. I, I was going to say, the LinkedIn environment is pretty casual, Jordan. The knives <laughs> are a total go. <laughs> there we go. That would that would that would fly there. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean that's I mean, tabletop troubleshooting, right? Like, I mean, the, yeah. the idea is, you know, rather than have it, rather than have an outage and actually, you know, going through the process of doing it, at least like, how would you think about it, so that yep. when it's there, I mean, that's that's also a good a good practice. So let's let's take this a bit more practical. Um, so you guys have some experience, um, probably have some advice to give them. Someone we're going to start down this process. You know, is there a list of a couple of things that they absolutely should do? And is there a list of a couple of things they absolutely should not do? I'll let Chris go first. <laughs> I'll put him on the spot. Don't turn off all your out external capacity. No, um, <laughs> I, I think, you know, I think some earlier on in the conversation we talked about, I think it was Yvonne said, you know, how do you figure out the right thing to get started with? And if you're not doing it today, a couple of times we said, or somebody else has said, um, do something that's small, like something you can easily get success with, right? Because especially if you're in a place where the culture is, is you know, change is difficult and breaking stuff is going to be very, very difficult to deal with. Finding something small and simple like desktop switching, you know, from, from the closet to the desktop, like what happens when somebody makes a bridge loop? How do we figure that out? How do we find the ports? How do we disable it? You know, somebody doesn't turn on the right 8021X authentication bits and now no one can get on the network. Like there's a bunch of easy things that, that you can do as an enterprise. They're kind of low risk things to do um, where you can work on, work out your configuration, your procedures, make sure everything is, is working correctly. But definitely also at the end, make sure you update procedures to be correct. I think I didn't get to say in the last little bit, I don't know how many times uh, you, I go through a procedure and I go, oh yeah, step three never works. Just skip over to five, right? And the, I do that with some of my coworkers and they go, just go update the goddamn documentation, dude. <laughs> so, and, and everyone has the same problem, right? There's like the guy who knows the process in and out, doesn't follow the procedure that's written anymore. And it turns out he skips, you know, N number of the steps. So the outcome for the testing is not just that you failed it that you failed something and fixed it, but that you also updated your documentation to be appropriate and correct. For us, definitely. Sorry, Chris. I was, I was saying, I think I mostly answered the question. Oh, yeah. Okay. For us, I, I think, um, or oh, for everyone, really, uh, if you feel uncomfortable about doing some sort of um, test because you're pretty sure something is going to break, um, I would advise you to go and fix it first. Um, if, you, if you're pretty sure that you're gonna have a problem, just go and fix the issue. Um, again, secondly, just start small. Um, so when LinkedIn started, um, we started with our fire drill project. So we have basically three tools. One where we can consume all the CPU on a server. The second one, um, we can uh, basically slow down the network traffic and put uh, packet loss um, into that uh, application traffic. And the third one is just fill, it, uh, fill up the disk um, and see what happens. Um, you know, these are all very uh, simple places to get started. Um, the second thing or third thing is, um, you know, make sure you communicate this. Um, with uh, our uh, resiliency engineering modules that we have, um, they change the message of the day on the server. 
So if someone logs in and tries to work out, there is a very nice clear banner that says to them, hey, a resiliency engineering test is active on this box. This is who uh, started it. Um, so, you know, if, it, if there was some sort of miss in uh, communication um, in, you know, that this test was going to happen, uh, when someone's investigating it, they've got a, you know, nice signal um, that they can see that something is actually being done on this box, um, you know, as a test, not a, you know, real issue. Uh, so that's where I'd start with. Excellent. What, what about making sure you're clear about the start and the stop of the test? Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Um, for the fire, uh, what we call the fire drill modules, we have at LinkedIn, uh, they actually have timeouts. So um, once I start the test, um, they will time out um, after a default period of time, which I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, so there is like an added safety measure um, to that test. Um, so, you know, someone doesn't, you know, go home, uh, start it, get distracted, go home and forget about it. Um, you know, the system does sort of protect itself. And um, we've been very diligent in, um, you know, putting as many of these checks um, and checks and balances into our resiliency engineering system. Excellent. Well, on that note, I think, uh, I think that about covers it for today. Uh, before we, before we, you know, all run away and go about and do our own things. Uh, Michael, why don't you tell people where they can find you online? Do you have blog or uh, social media sites or anything like that? Sure. Um, you can find my website at michael-keo.io. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash in slash Michael K. Keo or Twitter, um, on at, Matrix Tech, M-I-M-A-T-R-I-X-T-K. Um, and you can also find uh, more about LinkedIn's resiliency engineering efforts on the LinkedIn engineering blog at engineering.linkedin.com. Awesome. Chris, how about you? I don't have any really. <laughs> There's no presence at all. You, yes. you, you're uh, off the grid. <laughs> you can find me if you looked, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's all right. That's all right. That's yeah. Uh, Russ, how about you? Where can people find you? Rule11.tech at Routing Geek on Twitter, on LinkedIn, of course, and always at the Network Collective. Yvonne? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sharp Network and on the blog at esharp.net, LinkedIn. You know, send me a message, say hi. Um, and of course, you can find me hanging out on like the Network Collective member Slack um, where we chat about networking things. It's very fun. <laughs> <laughs> a little plug i like it uh, <laughs> so um so yeah i'm uh, jordanmartin.net at bc jordan on twitter um if you like this episode there are many more like it at the network collective.com uh from there you can learn how to subscribe we have you know lots of different ways to do that receive notifications whenever we post um if you if you've been a listener for a while and you like what we do we'd appreciate it if you could uh rate us or review us on itunes share it with one of your friends tell people that we're out here and what we're doing um just so that they can yeah uh, can learn about us as well uh speaking of social media and chatting and whatever we'd love to chat with our listeners whether you're a member or not they, they, you don't have to pay to chat with us but that is one of the benefits of <laughs> is that slack but uh but we're on we're on social media as well so at net collective pc on twitter uh, you can find us on facebook and linkedin if you just search for network collective um and just like yvonne said go check out the networkcollective.com slash join um to see how uh, membership might help you grow as an engineer uh that's i think it for today uh thanks again and we'll uh we'll see you all next time